The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to John 21. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in back on the table. Please feel free to grab one of those. Well, Jesus says to Peter, follow me. If you struggle with guilt and regret, Jesus asks, do you love me? Think of Peter. Peter who committed the worst sin of all, denying Jesus three times. Now I'm sure Peter, he knew that he was forgiven, but I imagine for a time, maybe the rest of his life, I don't know, that he beat himself up, that he still felt guilty, even though he knew he was forgiven. Do you feel this way? Do you know that you're forgiven? That yes, you know you'll be in heaven, but still you feel ashamed, you feel stuck, and that following Jesus, maybe that's for those better Christians. You know, Satan loves to whisper in our ears and remind us of our failures, tell us that There's no use following Jesus. But Jesus gives us some important ingredients for following him. It wasn't over for Peter. It's not over for you, for me. We all need to follow Jesus. Let's begin uh, going to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, you know everything. You know our sin You know our failures. You know even the things we are blind to. And in knowing this, you went to the cross for us. Lord, help us to get a sense of your heart, to understand that you did not die for some general, unknown, potential group of people, but that you chose to love us individually, specifically, knowing exactly who We are, warts and all, before the foundation of the world. As we see your love for Peter, help us to better understand your love for us, that we too need to follow you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray in your great name. Amen. John 21, we're going to be reading verses 15 to 25 and If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him, A second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. And who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, knowing you're forgiven isn't necessarily the same thing as as feeling forgiven. Jesus had already told Peter, remember? He had already told Peter and the others, peace be with you. Instead of saying, how could you do what, how could you deny me? How could you scatter? How could you leave me in my greatest time of need? He assures them of peace, of forgiveness. And yet, he comes to them again. Knowing that if Peter was if Peter was going to follow him and be effective in ministry, he needed to embrace this truth. Think of the earlier part of this story, how the disciples are fishing. They're not catching anything. Some guy on the shore, from their perspective, tells them, cast the net on the right side of the boat. And then 153 large fish come into their nets, and John immediately remembers, hey, this has happened before, and he says, it's the Lord. And what happened? Peter's first reaction, he, out of love, right? Don't you think? Out of love, he can't wait to get to Jesus. He puts on some clothes and jumps into the lake and swims 100 yards or so to the shore. It's so Peter-like, isn't it? spontaneous action he's so quickly he's excited to see Jesus because he loves him but it's pretty easy to imagine that as soon as Peter got to shore and their eyes met that he was reminded of those eyes of Jesus looking at him 
that third time when he denied him. And how ashamed, how grieved he was over this terrible failure. The love and excitement, I imagine, are probably quenched with this feeling of, you've experienced stuff like this, right? You're, you're in one mood and then you're reminded and you're like, oh, don't you think Peter experienced that? That maybe there was some awkward silence as they ate breakfast? He knew he was forgiven. But his, conclu- his conscience His conscience or Satan whispering in his ear wouldn't let him feel the reality of Christ's forgiveness. He knew Jesus didn't hold it against him, but but Peter held it against himself. And this would paralyze him for future service, if not dealt with. And this is why Jesus comes to him to deal with this. I imagine because Peter is a man with typical human struggles that from his perspective, the relationship didn't feel the same. Have you ever hurt someone or been hurt by someone? And yes, there's an apology. There's an expression of forgiveness and and you know that it's sincere but the relationship just doesn't feel like it used to. It's awkward. There's a wall between you. Even though the words have been said, even though you know it's true, you can't remove the past. You can't get it out of your head. Jesus has already communicated forgiveness to Peter, and yet our Savior knows that Peter needs a more, a more direct mercy, even a painful mercy. Jesus knows the potential for how this might haunt Peter, how it might discredit him from future ministry. And so he comes to heal and restore. I love how Dane Ortland put it. We need to see not only the verdict that has been rendered over us, but also more deeply and wondrously the heart from which that verdict comes. Not only the result but the cause. Christianity is not a set of beliefs that we follow. Christianity is following a person, Christ. And so we need to know the heart of Jesus. We need to know his love for us. Not a general, impersonal love, but a specific, sovereign love that knows exactly what we need. Jesus knows Peter. He knows his pride, his weaknesses, and and how best to teach him and grow him and make him useful for the king. The same is true for us. So it's beautiful to look and see how Jesus deals with Peter. What does Peter learn from this encounter with Jesus? You've probably heard the teaching on this um, conversation between Jesus and Peter that emphasizes two Greek words for love, agape being a higher form of love, and phileo, a more common brotherly love, where we get the, the name Philadelphia comes from the root word phileo, the city of brotherly love. So in this encounter, the 
first two times Jesus asks Peter, do you agape me? And each time Peter replies with, yes, I phileo you. And then the third time Jesus asks Peter, do you phileo me? Do you even love me with this common kind of love? So the teaching goes. Peter is grieved and says, yes. Those who take this view conclude that Jesus is challenging Peter with a higher kind of love, a love he should have for God, but Peter knows that he doesn't, and so he responds with the lower kind of love. And then the third time, Jesus comes down to Peter's level, basically saying, all right, Peter, I'll work with that because I'm able to bring that limited love up to the height of, that I desire, the height at which I have ordained for you to function. I don't think that's the right interpretation. Mostly because John uses these two Greek words throughout his gospel interchangeably. We've come to see that John is a wordsmith. He likes to use synonyms. In fact, he even uses agape and phileo when describing the disciple whom Jesus loved. He uses both words interchangeably concerning the father loving the son and Jesus loving Lazarus. So it's John's pattern to use these words interchangeably. It's John's pattern to use synonyms for stylistic reasons. And so I don't think the use of agape and phileo here that that's what we focus on. I don't think that's the point. It's love. It's just synonyms for love. Instead, let me give you three, yes, three points uh, of emphasis here. First is that Jesus' question is meant to humble Peter. He asks, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And so our focus really should be on, what does he mean by these? There's enough in the English here. What does he mean by these? Is Jesus, is he waving his hand at the fishing boats and the gear and saying, Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than fishing, than your work, than your former occupation, Do you love me more than maybe what this retirement is going to look like for you? Your hobby. Is he questioning whether Peter is is giving up and going back to work as a fisherman instead of being a fisher of men? And we can make wonderful application to this if that's what it was. It's not. We can make wonderful application to this, couldn't we? We could ask ourselves, do I love Jesus more than my work or my hobbies? And if you're listening to this message as a recording because you decided to go fishing today, that's a little awkward. Um, Jesus said, yes, we're, we're to love him more than our father or mother, more than our son or daughter. And if this is not true, then we're not worthy of him. We should be willing to sell everything for him. Compared to our love for him, our love for our family should look like hate. So it's a true biblical teaching, but this isn't what Jesus has in mind here. 
Do you love me more than these? What's he pointing at? Um, It's not the fishing gear, so is it the other disciples? And if it's the other disciples, what's he asking? Is Jesus asking, Peter, do you love me more than more than you love these men? No. What he's asking is, Peter, do you love me more than these, more than they do? Which seems like a funny question. Do you love me more than these other disciples love me? And it's especially, sounds especially strange since Peter answers, yes. Yes, I do love you more than these. If this is what Jesus is asking, we'd expect Peter to say, no, Lord, I'm not greater. I'm not better. My love for you is not superior than these others. But Peter's answer is yes. And it's not pride. In fact, it's actually humility. Instead of a boast, his yes is an admission of a greater guilt because Peter knew the teaching of Jesus that those who are forgiven more will love more. Remember when the Pharisee invited Jesus to his home for dinner and then a prostitute comes and washes Jesus' feet with her hair and begins to dry his feet with her hair, washing with her tears, excuse me, And the Pharisee criticizes Jesus, saying, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him. And Jesus responds, of course, with a story. He says, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. So when Jesus asked Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than they do? Peter understands that Jesus is saying, you should. You've been forgiven more than them. This is what you're struggling with, isn't it, Peter? You should love me more. The problem we all have is that we don't love as we ought. We don't follow Jesus as we should because we don't rightly see the depths of our sin. And just how great is his forgiveness. Christ's forgiveness for you is not a verdict that you simply know because you read it on a page. His forgiveness is a deeply personal decision to love you. 
And this realization should, it should demolish our guilt. It should produce a great love that, that wants to follow him. Jesus wants Peter to not only see the verdict of forgiveness, but also more deeply and wondrously the heart from which that verdict comes. If we're not humbled by our sin and by his forgiveness, then we will not rightly love him and thus follow him. A second point of emphasis is that Jesus' question brings about submission to his sovereignty. When Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Each time Peter replies with what? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know. You know. And then the third time, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Our relationship to Jesus is so much better when we see him for who he is. When we recognize that he is sovereign. He knows all things. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And he still loves us. Peter had to learn this painful lesson because earlier he thought, he actually thought Jesus was wrong. He thought he knew himself better than Jesus did. In Matthew 26, when Jesus and the disciples ate the Passover meal together, let's read that, beginning in verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Look at Peter's answer. Peter answers him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Jesus is sovereign. He He knows us better than we know ourselves. He doesn't suggest to his disciples that this is a a possibility. He knows. He prophesied based upon the word of God that all of them will fall away. All of them will scatter when he is struck. And that Peter specifically will deny him three times before the rooster crows. It's pretty specific, isn't it? Jesus is not simply a good guesser. He's God. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And Peter says, you may be right about them, but not me. Not me, Jesus. You're wrong about me. You don't know me, Jesus. I'm Peter. I'm the rock. I'm the brave one. I'll never fall away. I'll never deny you. I'll die with you. Peter learned a painful lesson. He's been greatly humbled. And there's comfort and assurance in knowing that Jesus knows us and still loves us. 
He once said, not me. In essence, I'm brave. And now he says, I submit. You know everything, Lord. A third point of emphasis here is that Jesus restores beautifully, wonderfully, restores through, yes, a very painful mercy. Instead of a a useless life bound up in guilt, Jesus restores Peter to ministry. He reveals Peter's need for a humble love, repentance, submission to Jesus. And when these are present, it leads to a usefulness in his kingdom. Peter gets it wrong. This encounter goes way beyond merely knowing that he's forgiven. And it's a painful mercy. And you know, oftentimes when you have an injury or something, that healing, it it just, it has to be painful if you're going to be healed. Apparently the same is true with our souls at times. It needs to be painful, not cruel, but merciful. So in front of his fellow disciples, Peter had said, they may fall away, but I won't. And now Jesus, he asked Peter in front of these men, do you love me more than these? Were you forgiven more? It was a public failure that also affected his brothers, and it requires a public healing in their midst, a humbling. And Jesus leaves no doubt in any of their minds that he has restored Peter and called him back to the ministry because he says, feed my sheep. It's a painful restoration in that Jesus intentionally asked Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? That third time it became obvious to Peter that Jesus is asking as many times as Peter had denied him. It's a painful restoration. But it's a great mercy because Jesus, what is he doing here? He's given Peter the same number of opportunities to publicly profess the opposite, his love for him. This time, instead of denying him three times, he can publicly declare his love for him three times. Jesus is never cruel. If there's a pain involved with our forgiveness, it's for our good. It comes from his loving heart. And we need to keep this in mind because, wow, look at, look at verse 18. We could think Jesus is being punitive or cruel here. He's talking to Peter and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk yourself wherever you wanted. But when you are old, this is prophetic, you will stretch out your hands, which everyone understood. John tells us so. That's a way of saying crucifixion. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands 
and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And again, Jesus doesn't make predictions. He's God. And so this description of Peter's eventual crucifixion is what Jesus wants for him, wills for him, ordains for him. And again, not to be cruel, not as a punishment because of his past failures, but to give Peter, just like the three times of getting it right, saying, I love you, just like that, he's given Peter another opportunity to do what he said he would do. Peter's the one who said, I will die with you. And certainly, it's the greatest honor for us to share in Christ's sufferings. Martyrs throughout church history considered it their glory and crown. An incredible privilege to die for the sake of Christ. And so now Jesus gives Peter this painful mercy, this great honor to this time stand up for Jesus and die out of love for him. And for another 30 years or so, Peter lived with the knowledge this knowledge that one day he would be crucified. Jesus told him how he would die. No longer young and bold, capable and free, but one day he would stretch out his arms on a cross. He would have no power over what he wore or where he would go. He too would be crucified. And church history tells us this is what happened. Peter hears this and he asks, what about John? Sees John following, turns to him, takes his eyes off of Jesus and says, what about him? And Jesus brings Peter back to humility, back to submitting to his sovereignty, saying, That's really not your concern. You follow me. Oh, what a challenge this is for all of us. We we compare, don't we? We want what God sovereignly chooses to give to others. Or we grumble about what he's given to us. And in doing so, we question his decisions. We question his wisdom. We question his goodness. It's none of our business, really. It's none of our business what God determines to do. He's good. He's perfect. He's sovereign. And we need to humbly submit to this. And out of love, just do what he says. Follow him for as many days as he gives us. Jesus says, follow me. If you belong to him, if you are one of his sheep, if you, if you love him, he says, follow me. For Peter, this meant feeding and caring for Jesus' sheep. In this painful mercy, asking three times, Jesus restores Peter 
And he calls him to feed his sheep. Not Peter's sheep, by the way. Jesus' sheep. Jesus sovereignly cares for each of us. And he does so through his church. Jesus calls pastors or elders, shepherds, under-shepherds to feed his sheep. His sheep. And so my calling is to feed you spiritual food that nourishes and strengthens your soul to teach and preach the word of God. Our calling as shepherds is to care for you, to know your needs, to help where we can help, to protect you from wolves by teaching right doctrine, to pray for you, to bring comfort to you from God's word. And there are also wonderful deacons as a part of a good church who are especially gifted in practical ways of caring for you. Jesus establishes, he builds his church calling under shepherds to care for his sheep. Isn't that wonderful? Honestly. Honestly, I don't know why anyone would want to be a sheep on their own without the care of those whom Jesus calls and equips to feed and tend. A sheep on its own is in danger. The church is God's design. Don't listen to people who say it's created by man. It's Jesus' idea. It's God's design. It's what Jesus established and built. And all of us need to humbly recognize that we're not okay on our own. This is especially relevant in our Western culture, our individualistic mindset, more and more so. With all of the technology and things that we can listen to, it doesn't replace this. We're not okay on our own. Even with great podcasts to listen to. We need the church. We need the accountability. We need the personal care. That he sovereignly knows all things and what's best for each of us. So as I mentioned in yesterday's email, if you're like, email? (laughs) Yes, email, church email. If you want to get it, bearcreekchurch.org, you can sign up there. As I mentioned in that email, I'm excited to begin a new study through the book of Acts. To grow in our love and our understanding, our appreciation for this, the church. The work that Jesus does in Peter. These are the characteristics that we all need. Especially me. Especially the elders who care for you. We need humility. That sees the true depths of our sin and knows the grace and forgiveness of Jesus in order to love him with, a, with an appropriate growing love that wants to follow him. We need, I, I need submission to Christ knowing that his word is truth. That we can't ignore it. We can't come up with our own ideas and do something different because as Peter says, Jesus, you, you know everything. Submitting to the sovereignty of God in all things, it's a great comfort. 
He knows everything. He's promised to work all things for our good. So we humbly follow him and we do what he says and we trust him. And this humility and submissive, submissiveness, it recognizes that we're a part of a body. We're not meant to do it on our own. We're connected, we're accountable to each other. You know, something I love about the leadership of this church is that Pastor Dale has instilled both a responsibility to lead and a humility with each other. Some of you may not know this, but this may be shocking. Pastor Dale has a big personality. Uh, he's what some would call an extrovert. Uh, there's a lot of charisma. There's a lot of humor. And I'm sure it'd be very tempting for him to use this kind of influence. And because of this, over the years, you know, I've had conversations with people to where they just assume that, that Bear Creek Church, that Pastor Dale, because of this big personality, he's the CEO and he just does whatever he wants to do. He, he always gets his way. But the reality is, he loves Jesus. He wants to follow Jesus. He's instilled this in the elders. And Jesus says that his sheep, you know, the design of his church, were to be led by a plurality of elders, of accountable elders, biblically qualified elders. So I can testify that, yes, sometimes the elders over the years have said no to Pastor Dale. Shocking. Um, that the decisions made are agreed upon. They're made by a plurality of elders who are accountable to each other. And I love, you know, with this big personality that Pastor Dale has, he's, he so humbly submits to that. He knows what's right. So as we follow Jesus, there's going to be humility. There needs to be submission and love that compels us to follow Christ. Okay, here we are. We've come to the end of John's gospel. And there's, there is so much to be preached that I didn't preach, and I am so hesitant to wrap it up. But I want to conclude this study with, with John's final verse. A really interesting verse. He writes, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's how he ends it. And of course this is connected to John saying the purpose that he wrote this is that so we, we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing we might have eternal life. So he's given us what we need to know about Jesus, to have eternal life. But then he says, he did so many more things. I suppose the world could not contain the book's that would be written if they told of them. And we read this and we assume John is using hyperbole, don't we? Probably is. Certainly it's an it's a intentional exaggeration to say that the world could not contain all the books written about the things that Jesus did. 
But then I started to think about that. It's still true, isn't it? Let's not forget who Jesus is and how Jesus begins, how John begins his gospel about Jesus, saying that he is God. Let's remember that his works are, they're infinite. That his works extend back into eternity past. That he is the word who was with God in the beginning and is God and all things are made through him. And not only that, let's not forget that the works of Jesus did not end at his ascension. That Jesus continues working by the Spirit through you, through his church. And so the things Jesus does has actually continued throughout church history, through his people. So with that in mind, could the world contain all the books? I don't think so. His works are never ending. And as an example of this, I want to close with one very short book, not a part of Holy Scripture, but a book among innumerable books that our world could never contain. It's by a non-inspired writer of this story. and It's a a non-inspired writer of this story uh, that Pastor Jim writes. James 2, I think. No, we won't call it that. Uh, He writes, Pastor Jim writes about Pastor Dale. Maybe you saw his Facebook post. But the more I thought about it, truly, it's one more testimony of what Jesus has done. So let me share that. He writes, he rode along with the police officers to see what they encountered. He quietly drove the family to the hospital to understand the depth of the injury. He ran the distance with other runners to appreciate what they endured. He shouldered alongside a young man's commitment to a Christian university. He visited the mill to sense the magnitude of the manager's responsibility. He traveled 150 miles to be alongside a parishioner at his father's memorial. This just scratches the surface of his counting others more significant than himself. Who am I talking about? He's been my and 400 other Bear Creek Churchers pastor for the last 25 years, Pastor Dale Metter. Years ago, Pastor Brian Phelps identified Petey's unique yet biblical style. He spotted him as a shepherd pastor, meaning he comes alongside those in his care and wants to know what challenges them and directs them to what God's word guides them to do. Thinking about it, I realized Petey was wanting to rightfully be an under-shepherd for the one he loves. Jesus says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Whether it was praying for someone at 10 p.m. at the hospital or preparing his sermon for his church family at 2 a.m., PD had the, great, had the deep 
guarding of Jesus' flock and his protection. This morning I came across this post by Tim Challies, also pictured alongside Pastor Dale. My first reaction was, Tim's talking about Pastor Dale. Those of you who know PDC, if you don't see him in these opening lines, Tim Challies wrote, I once read of a pastor who made the commitment to spend several days out of every month with his parishioners at their workplaces. He made it his habit to arrange visits to their factories and offices, their stores and schools. He had a specific purpose in mind and one he believed would make him a more effective pastor. He wanted to understand their day-to-day lives so that in his preaching and counseling, he could make application that would speak to their circumstances. He acknowledged that the life of a pastor is very different from the life of a student, a laborer, a CEO, or a store clerk. He acknowledged that unless he was aware of how their lives differed from his own, he could easily assume too much and understand too little. I'm forever shaped by and forever grateful to PD and Nancy for their other-centeredness and their desire to follow Jesus, to lay down his life for the sheep. Pastor Jim. Let's pray. Father, we are blessed. Blessed to be a part of your church. Blessed to receive the feeding and tending of your under-shepherd. Blessed to be a part of the innumerable works of Jesus that continue on. And that certainly, if written, are too many for the world to contain. Jesus, you know each of us better than we know ourselves. You know the ways in which we have denied you, and we are reminded of your words to Peter, do you love me and follow me? Certainly, without question, we are undeserving recipients of your love, of your forgiveness, your calling and equipping of us to follow you, to represent you, to share your love with others. Lord, help us to embrace your forgiveness, to not be paralyzed with a guilt and shame that you have already dealt with on the cross. Help us to receive this by faith, to love you more each day as we follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.